Uh, to me, when I look at the uh, website for the EBRD, which has hundreds of pages of material about, uh, with every beautiful word about equality and sustainability, and they're fighting global warming, they're fighting against COVID, they're uh, they're supporting uh, democracy. Uh, it's every page is something beautiful which they're doing. And uh, the reality of what they're actually doing is the exact opposite of what they say that they're doing. Thing with Ukraine, which connected to this banking system, is that when Yanukovych was the president, um, he worked with a bagman, you could call him, named uh, Sergei Kurchenko. And that guy, Sir Kurchenko, was basically helped uh, Yanukovych remove billions of dollars from Ukraine. If you are like me, you're constantly searching for the best solutions to keep you and your family healthy. We all know that diet and exercise is important, but unfortunately, diet and exercise is not enough in today's toxic and nutritional deficient environment. No matter how much you try to eat healthy, soils depleted of minerals will not produce sufficiently nourishing food. That's why we have carefully curated products on the controlyourhealth.care website that keep you fully nourished. The Healthy Foundation Pack for those wanting a complete nutritional program, the On The Go Pack for those looking for a more convenient yet quality solution, and the plant-derived minerals for those on a budget who need more for your money. Starting at less than $30, you can get what our bodies lack the most, and that's minerals. The plant-derived minerals contain up to 77 minerals from prehistoric plants in their unaltered colloidal form, which will give you nourishment you just cannot find in today's food. The price does not mean less quality. Far from it. Plant-derived minerals are also in the complete nutritional program, and these minerals are what our foods lack most. Plus, it comes in tasty flavors for the entire family to enjoy. So if you're on a tighter budget, plant-derived minerals are for you. You can find links for these and many other products at controlyourhealth.care or at sarahwestall.com slash shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have an incredible show for you. I think this is one of the more important shows as far as putting more of the pieces together on what's really going on with this Kasarian Mafia and the banks and Ukraine and how it ties into the Russian mafia, to Vladimir Putin, to the United States. And a few things that uh, John Christmas is who we're having on, and he is just great. He is a whistleblower. He worked for a Latvia bank. And Latvia, I'm going to pull up a map here. You can see it's north of Ukraine and west of Russia. And he was brought on, and he'll explain it, but he was brought on to represent this bank. And the bank was one of the largest money launderers for the Russian mafia, for the Russian oligarchs, Putin uses as well. But more importantly, I think, is its ties to Ukraine and the fact that the past president of Ukraine, when he left office, they stole billions. This was in 2014, and they raped the whole country's treasury, brought out down to like $46 or something like that. I mean, just all of it, essentially. And we think it's through the bank that he was working with. Also, it ties to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Now, it has European in its name, but don't let that fool you. It was actually created by the United States. It was the United States as a founding member. 
and the United States has the highest percent ownership of this bank and therefore the highest authority over what goes on. But we also have the majority of the funding comes from the U.S. taxpayers. Now, this bank, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, he keeps calling it the the EBRD. So when you hear that, that's what he's talking about. But this bank was created after the fall of the Soviet Union. And what it was created for was to help bring democracy to the past communist states. And then since then, there's been a lot more countries. They've gone into Africa, now in Asia. It's all over the place. But they have been serving as a cover-up for this money laundering. They talk about doing all these things, but that's not what they're doing. And us U.S. taxpayers are funding it. And they're covering up all these crimes. And he's going to talk about it. He's been trying to expose this activity for uh, many years now, he actually wrote a book called KGB Banker, which is really great. It's a fiction book, but it gives you an overall view of this whole scene. And it's a pattern. It's how they get around doing all this money laundering, how they cover it up, and how they're doing what they're doing. You know, I sure hope John is safe because what he has here is a big piece of the puzzle on what these guys are doing. And I I know he's safe in the sense that he's going public. He's trying to get himself out there. So people, you know, he's always in the public. He's in in a safer location, meaning they don't know where he's at. You know, he's great. I just hope he gets this information and people help get this information far and wide. Like I said, it's one of the major pieces of the puzzle of how we take these guys down. Of course, we need a justice system that operates properly. We need to get these criminals out of positions so that we can actually have a justice system. If you don't have a functioning justice system, you don't have a civilized society. And that's why we are in such a bad situation. We need to solve that problem. But this, what he's going to be talking about also ties into Hunter Biden. It it ties into the Clintons and it ties into human trafficking and drug trafficking and pretty much the worst crimes imaginable. It's the model of corruption and cover-ups that he's exposing here. And this bank and this system, this banking system is one of the largest models of what they've implemented, especially when it comes to Ukraine and the fact that they stole their entire treasury through this bank. And the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development covered it up. They won't even talk to him. He could not get people to talk to him. All they did is cover it up and he had all the proof. So I hope you share this video far and wide. I know there's so much to share and so much going on, but every so often you get one of the key pieces of the puzzle And those kinds of shows and that kind of information is very, very important. So anyways, before I get into the show, I want to remind you, we're still raising money for our lawsuit. We're getting closer, but we still have a ways to go. You can go to uh, Give, Send, Go, Defending Free Speech. Some people are pushing back, mostly positive on this, but some people are pushing back saying that the justice system isn't going to work anyways and we need to completely overhaul it. And I agree 100%. We need to do the common law courts, but we still are going to have to work with it in the system. No matter what, we're going to have to change and make it impossible for the government to coerce and work in partnership with big tech. That's the problem. Because even if you go after the government, just sue the government, that doesn't keep big tech from partnering with somebody else behind the scenes. It doesn't keep the government and big tech from doing what they do 
in closed quarters. And I know even doing a lawsuit like this might be hard to be able to stop that. But if you can uncover it, it makes it makes them a lot it makes them on edge and it's going to make them have to be a lot more careful about doing that. And it'll shine a very bright spotlight on government's behavior when it comes to fascism and companies. That is very, very significant. But anyways, we did file our appeal in the Ninth Circuit. You can read that. We are going to be uh, they're going to try the case and it's going to go to the next phase. And so we'll see uh, how we do. And uh, the goal is to put a major break on censorship so that people can see, you know, that's what's going on re- in Ukraine. And when you look at the difference in attitudes be- between people who are believing the propaganda and people who don't, people in Canada did a survey showing that the, the fundamental difference in thinking and people who are who are completely propagandized have a different model and are in a paradigm and they just can't break out. And the people who see things differently are the ones who are being exposed to truth or reality or at least different thoughts. And when they censor, they keep those people in this box and they're trying to force the majority into that box. And that is so destructive to civilized society that we have to break that up. So please go there, give some go slash defending free speech. It's also at sarahwestall.com. There's a big yellow bar. You can support me there. And while you're at my website, please sign up for my newsletter and support my affiliates. And thank you, everybody who supports this show. I really do appreciate you. It's not just lip service. I, you know, I, this is what I do. And I, it's a passion of mine. And I'm, I'm hoping that I do a good enough job to to keep you around. So anyways, let's get into this. It's a long one. It's a two-parter with whistleblower John Christmas. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, you have some pretty interesting stuff going on. And I wanted to, Brad Birkenfeld is the one who introduced us, which is great. But you, you wrote a book called KGB Banker, right? And you are, you can show us all this. And this is about, you're a whistleblower on the crimes that were going on with the Russian mob and how it ties into the United States and even into Biden. But can you tell me before we all get all into this, what, what were you, what was your real role and how did you run into this? Well, Uh, I did not intentionally get myself involved into this, but uh, I was originally a banker in the United States, and I have a connection with, excuse me, Latvia, because my mother was born in Latvia, and I got invited to uh, become the Western representative of the bank that used to be the largest bank in Latvia, so that's when the saga started. Okay, and what was your role there? So uh, I met this bank through the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia, and uh, what they told me right out in front in the beginning is that they had a reputational problem, that people believed that they were former KGB or that they were Russian mafia and that their business was money laundering, and that they wanted to communicate the good news to the Western banks that they cooperated with. Uh, that we had proper uh, corporate governance and proper anti-money laundering, um, that uh, we were a reliable partner for them in Latvia. So 
they specifically wanted from someone from a Western background to do this for them because they said they didn't want to send anybody with a Russian accent to talk with the Western banks. Uh, so they felt I was perfect for the role. So you were the, the patsy out in front without at first knowing what was really going on, assuring people that you were assuring people that it was an upstanding bank. And then you learn that it wasn't. Is that the scenario? Right. And this use of front people is goes on and on throughout the story because um, this is what the Russian mafia does or what the Kremlin-linked banks do, not just the banks. I mean, the other uh, companies and organizations affiliated with the Kremlin is uh, the use of Western front people to meet people, uh, putting people on boards of directors. Obviously, that's something we're going to get to. Uh, this even goes into fake shareholding, like... Uh, where a bank improves its reputation by getting a reputable shareholder, uh, it can be a problem because maybe no reputable shareholder actually would invest into that bank. Uh, but then you set up the ownership in a fake way, like for example, secretly paying them to pretend to make an investment in the bank. Okay, I could see them doing that. I could see people, a lot of people doing that. Okay, so what, what did you learn? I mean, like what did you do and then what did you learn? Well, in the beginning, I was uh, a loyal employee for this bank. They were giving me quarterly information that uh, showed our financial position. Uh, we had uh, the Western ratings agencies coming in. We had one big four auditor was auditing our accounts. Another big four auditor uh, did something called an AML audit on us to ensure every, with everybody that our anti-money laundering procedures were correct. This was the information I was being handed, which seemed to indicate that everything was good at the bank. Um, as time went on and I attended more internal meetings, I started to learn uh, disturbing things going on at the bank, which was mostly about the bank making large loans to known organized crime figures and fraudulently booking the loans. So it wasn't so much about the money laundering that I was uh, personally knowledgeable about, but it was more about the, uh, let's say, embezzlement or looting from the bank by making uh, fraudulent loans to people where the, the loans were payoffs or embezzlement rather than real loans. Oh, so it was like a, a payoff for something that they, they wanted somebody to do or something? What does that mean? How the structure of it is, um, the structure of it is very confusing. So this bank had, uh, the name was Parex Bank of Latvia, had approximately 80,000 depositors who were shell companies. And oh. those shell companies were registered in different uh, jurisdictions. But anyway, those were the account holders of most of the deposit accounts at the bank, although they mixed this in with some normal domestic business as well. Um, most of the depositors were these shell companies. Um, you could speculate that all of that was money laundering as well. I mean that, uh, you know, everybody who keeps their money offshore in a shell company held account is probably doing something bad. So uh, that was one aspect of it. Yeah, but then the other aspect of it is at the same time they do this, they also have a fake loan portfolio where they're making loans to other shell companies, uh, possibly controlled by other people. And some of it was uh, the top managers at the bank or the top owners of the bank making loans to themselves. And part of it was uh, making loans to people connected with the Kremlin where uh, 
perhaps it was some kind of a payoff or it could be even some kind of return of a deposit. Like they made a deposit, but then they borrowed back the money uh, in order to make it, when people asked them where they got the money from, they would say it was from this loan, but actually they had given it to the bank in the first place. Uh, it was a, a whole web of complexity, which uh, anyway, the size of it, 80,000 accounts, uh, shows that there were a lot of different uh, nefarious things going on. Um, but at the end of the day, there are- certain... Was it a government? Hmm? Oh, keep going. Oh, well, at the end of the- I was just going to ask if it was a government-sponsored bank or if it was not. Well, in the beginning, it was supposed to be a privately owned bank. I mean, there were certain oligarchs who were known to be the owners of the bank. And uh, it was not supposed to be part of the government, although we had representatives of some of the political parties in Latvia who had uh, board or council positions with the bank. Um, and what came out later when the bank got nationalized is that uh, it was essentially a cooperation between the Latvian government and the bankers that they were inseparable from the government. Okay, so this was behind the scenes a government laundering business. Sure, and it also a, represents a cooperation between Latvia and Russia, because uh, you know the Latvian government and the Russian government are supposed to be different things, and the Latvian government is supposed to be on the side of NATO and the European Union. Uh, but it turns out that uh, maybe it's not. Maybe it's a, a, like a fifth column or whatever they say, that uh, the Latvians kind of present themselves to be one way, but they're secretly working on a different agenda. Interesting. Okay. And then uh, this bank also ties back to uh, all sorts of other entities. I mean, it's, you, you, you have the Russian mob tied to it. And then we have other things. Now, let's talk about the Russian mob a little bit. How was that used with this bank? Well, the most clear connection, which is evidenced, which I can use, is that uh, the largest attempt by any government to prosecute uh, Putin's oligarchs was when Spain had a trial for the Tambovskaya Mafia. Now, this mafia, some of the guys had homes in Mallorca, and the Spanish prosecutors went after them. It even resulted in some, let's say, retaliation by Russia against Spain, uh, making things inconvenient for them. Even the Catalonian separatists, uh, to some degree, were uh, flared up by the Kremlin, uh, like in an attempt to make a civil war in Spain. Um, at the top of this group, the Tambovskaya Mafia from St. Petersburg, uh, were some people who were uh, mobsters and some people who were uh, political affiliates of Vladimir Putin. So uh, a lot of people speculate that this Tambovskaya Mafia was Putin's original uh, power source that allowed him to eventually take over the whole country. But it started off as a mafia that was involved with narcotics trafficking and weapons dealing was another big one, where it seemed that the Russian government was using organized crime groups as fronts to do weapons deals with uh, various warlords. Wow, okay. And then how, what did you- So this bank, anyway, this bank, Parx Bank was named in the Spanish court documents as being the for both of the people who were named as the main money launderers for this mafia, one of whom even, uh, uh, one of them confessed, the other one escaped back to Russia and did not have his trial. But uh, anyway, both of them were using platform accounts at Parx Bank for their money laundering. 
Okay. And then how was, um, it's just so incredible, but I know the United States gets involved in all dirty stuff too. And especially the Bidens that that's crime family, they've been involved in all sorts of things, but what did we, what did you learn about how the mafia, the Russian mafia money, where does it go? Did you get a chance to follow the, the money trail? Well, um, no, and this is something where clues pop up from time to time. I mean, there was even a senior person in the Latvian government one time admitted that Latvia was a transit state and was not the final destination for this money, that people who somehow controlled this money ran it through Latvia on the way to hiding it in a safer place somewhere else, but that Latvia was just a transit point for it. So it's very hard to tell. Uh, from my standpoint, what happened exactly? I mean, one thing they did is they they purchased a subsidiary bank in Switzerland, and then the subsidiary bank in Switzerland had an openly advertised service on their website for years that they would help depositors to deposit money at other Western banks in, a, in the name of a nominee so that the other Western banks would not know who their real uh, depositor was. And this is completely illegal, but they did this for years. And uh, there are certain countries where the Russians feel safe having their money finally at last. Uh, Switzerland would be high up on the list. Uh, but also, I suppose at this point right now, they'd be happy to just have their money anywhere uh, outside of Russia, at least. So um, it's a lot of different deals going on with 80,000 different companies and different people trying to move their money to different places. And so basically, how does the laundering work? So would they, tell me if this is right, would they open up an account under a different name and then do another account under a different name and then transfer it to another bank or something? So there's multiple names. And so in order to follow where this money is, it's very difficult. I mean, is, am I right with that? Or Well, you have to do a bit more than that. You have to... Um... Because let's suppose you set up five different accounts in five different countries and each of your bank accounts was held by a different shell company, which uh, nobody knew who owned the shell company. Uh, it would be possible to follow the money trail anyway, because you'd be able to see the money uh, being transferred to the first company and then being transferred to the second company and so on. Uh, so that's where they get into a further thing, which is where there's a platform where they commingle. Uh, clean money and dirty money, uh, such that nobody can tell which money is which. Like, for example, if you have a, uh, a company that has many, many uh, amounts coming in and many, many amounts going out, and the amounts are not correlated, it's not the same amount of money on the same day, but rather you kind of mix it up, like you break a larger amount into a whole bunch of smaller amounts and then transfer them out to different countries on different days. Uh, something like that. And if you commingle it together with some legitimate business activity uh, for any kind of investigation later to figure out which money went where, uh, it's very difficult to match up anything. And so that's why they, they do it. And so they just really convolute the, the, the uh, tracking. Okay. So now what did you learn? Well, there's another complicated aspect to all of this, which is, you know, the mystery of how organized crime works is, uh, that nobody can trust each other within the system. So uh, like suppose you somehow stole a million dollars and you wanted them to mix it up and send it off to somewhere else. Uh, how could you trust them? Because you know they would just steal it from you and they'd say, oh, we don't remember that you deposited a million dollars and it's not there anymore. 
Um, but you have to sort of be part of this network. I mean, part of the mafia or part of the KGB, I guess they have a loyalty to each other. But if you were, I would go there and try to make a deposit and ask them to launder it. Uh, it most likely would just, just disappear and we would never see it again. Well, that makes sense because they, they have a, a, a blackmail system too on each other so that they trust each other through this blackmail system. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they each have something. Sure, yeah, on I people. agree. They yeah. do this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what made you go once you started learning? I mean, how did you learn? Because you were responsible for being this front man. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, they really are creepy. What did you learn? And why did you then go forward? Well, I felt they were going to destroy the national economy of Latvia. And they, they did actually do that. But my goal was to prevent that from happening. So um, I had a list of frauds, which I had learned about from internal meetings, about 20 large frauds. And I thought this was more than enough for the auditor and the ratings agencies to drop them. And uh, again, the auditor and the ratings agencies were Western companies. So uh, once I had collected this information, I gave it on to them, thinking that the auditors and ratings agencies would immediately drop them, and that would be the end of it. I thought this would be over in a week. Um, the fact that I'm still in exile now, and this started in 2004, points to, uh, well, you know, the auditors and the ratings agencies decided to go the opposite way. They decided to fight the whistleblowing and to continue endorsing the bank. Um, which is something I think they deserve large lawsuits for. Um, but then it's just the cover-ups uh, continued. I mean, we're getting to the, the beginning of this, which is um, eventually going to lead us to Hunter Biden, but it's about an institution called the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, or the EBRD, which is headquartered in London. It's funded by about 70 different countries, including the United States is the largest single investor in the EBRD, that this institution came to Latvia when Latvia, so first of all, I did the whistleblowing, uh, the auditors ignored it. Uh, and which auditors the were they? Collapsed. Was this a US auditors? You want me to say it's Ernst & Young. Okay, yeah, thank you. Okay. So uh, they uh, did nothing and got angry at me for giving them the information. Oh. Uh, the bank continued to expand for a couple more years before the government bailed it out. Uh, so they continued to borrow more money and send out the money to whoever their cronies were uh, for a couple more years to make the fraud as bad as possible. And then the Latvian government suddenly announced that the bank uh, needed a huge bailout loan and uh, made this bailout loan to the bank, which from its balance sheet, you wouldn't guess that it needed a bailout because it seemed to have very strong capital. Um, but it turned out to be that the balance sheet was not truthful. Uh, but anyway, the Latvian government nationalized it and provided this bailout loan. And then uh, in order to reassure the public and reassure bond creditors and so forth that uh, the bank had not been looted uh, because some people suspected that. Uh, what they did, I mean, I knew that, but some people suspected that and uh, then no one really knew what the government was saying, if it was true or false. Uh, the government called in this uh, international development bank, the EBRD. The EBRD announced a due diligence process on the bank's assets. This was in 2009. And they announced that the bank was valuable and they announced that they were buying a stake in the bank from the government. Okay. And basically, in your opinion, did the, the Latvia 
people just get completely hosed, like totally ripped off? Well, yeah, they did get totally ripped off. I mean, it was a substantial chunk of the annual GDP that got stolen. Um, the uh, realization of how much got stolen came slowly because the EBRD was claiming that everything was okay and nothing got stolen. And that's what Latvia was saying originally also. Uh, these bankers kind of split up into three different banks. Uh, one of them uh, was ABLV Bank, which was later sanctioned by the US Treasury for money laundering related to Ukraine mainly. Um, another one was Ukio Bank of Lithuania, which later got caught in an extraordinary case where Vladimir Putin's cellist had an account there. I'm not sure if you read about this one, but uh, oligarchs were making these uh, payments of hundreds of millions of dollars to an account that was held by a professional cellist uh, from St. Petersburg, who turned out to be a childhood friend of Vladimir Putin's. Uh, which would make everyone assume that these must be payoffs to Vladimir Putin. Um, the last bank, Citadel Bank, is still going. That one is in Latvia. And uh, we'll get to that one at the ending because that's the one that's still going. But then another extraordinary thing happened is that it turned out that this privatization to the EBRD was fake. Really? That Latvia had secretly paid the EBRD to buy that stake, that the EBRD did not invest its own money. It did not really think that the bank was valuable. The EBRD knew that it was a criminal bank. And the only reason the EBRD bought a stake in it is because Latvia secretly kicked back the money plus extra on top of that to them for their trouble. And why would now, Latvia do that? Why do you think they would do that? Uh, because they're all secretly on the payroll of the money launderers for 20 years. Okay. Interesting. Um, why the EBRD did that? I mean, this is a question that I think needs to be explored. Like, is the EBRD a front for the Kremlin? What the EBRD says, and remember, U.S. taxpayers uh, fund the EBRD, along with European taxpayers, British taxpayers, and a lot of other taxpayers, is that they're on this mission of uh, transparency and equality and democracy and so forth. Uh, they say that they're making money by making small credits to small business people in, in troubled states. Uh, it turns out that they're not really making money from that, that they're making money from uh, doing these fake deals that are protecting oligarchs at taxpayer expense. So anyway, I thought this was something that the United States should do something about immediately, that the United States has the authority to uh, go to the EBRD and ask them what they did. Can they please explain how come this deal got reversed back again? And was this, uh, uh, is it a normal thing for them is another question because some feedback I get is that the EBRD has been doing this for years in other countries as well. Uh, making these equity investments that are not real, where they got the money secretly paid to them, or they're a, how would you say it, that they're selling their name, that if you're a disreputable company and you want to get a reputable shareholder, uh, the EBRD is supposedly great because supposedly they're these saints who are on this mission of democracy. Uh, so if you say, look, one of our shareholders is the EBRD, then everybody trusts you. Uh, but it turns out that uh, mobsters were secretly organizing to pay the EBRD to pretend to make investments. And the United States can stop that any day that they want. All they have to do is put the evidence in front of the EBRD, demand some kind of explanation what they're doing, ask them to restate their financial statements to correct them. 
uh, also ask the countries which they cooperate with to restate their financial statements because it means the client countries of the EBRD are falsifying their national debts. <laughs> well, it sounds like these things are pretty widespread. Are there any countries that, are you, are you starting to suspect that there are more countries falsifying their debts? Well, the extent of it uh, is potentially mind-boggling, and this gets into a difference of philosophy about government debt generally. I mean, is it good for countries to borrow more and more and more and more, or is it better for countries to have uh, responsible budgets and to not keep borrowing more and more, especially if the money is lost to waste and corruption? Um, I find one of my hurdles with getting journalists interested in what the EBRD is doing a lot of journalists think it's good. They say that that's good accounting because Latvia has too much debt. And by making the debt look smaller, then this helps Latvia to borrow more money. And I tell them that this is fraud. This is the definition of fraud. And they say that they think that this is good. It's like a rescue. Like if, you're, if you cannot pay your debt and you can do an accounting trick to make it look like your debt is half smaller than it really is, uh, that you've done a rescue. Whereas traditionally this would be called a fraud. Well, yeah, and we play all these games, but I'm more concerned that they're laundering money for the mafia and what that money is being used for, you know, and is it more than just the Russian mafia? Well, I mean, it's tied in the, the range of crimes that this group of banks, if you consider all of them, Parex, ABLV, Ukio, and uh, Citadelle all together, and there are a couple other smaller ones as well. Uh, I mean, one of the things was narcotics trafficking. It was trafficking heroin from Afghanistan and Burma into Europe, and I suppose into America as well. Uh, you know, that's another region where Putin has kind of won because uh, the, the dictatorial regimes that are now in Burma and in Afghanistan are, uh, you know, they're pariah states for everybody else in the world, but they're great friends with Putin. Um, yeah, so the heroin trafficking would be a big thing. Apparently cocaine trafficking then got mixed into this as well. And they were dealing with uh, cartels in Latin America with cocaine trafficking, I guess, as long as they have the network set up. Um, the, the arms dealing, of course, is uh, you know another international issue that uh, the Russian government is apparently selling or providing arms to uh, various rogue players around the world. And hiding that the Russian government is actually doing this by doing it through fronts. Um, other things as well, uh, supposedly uh, sex slave trafficking was another big one with these guys. Oh, that's uh, great. Then on top of all those things, you just have the financial frauds, just looting out banking systems, looting out governments. You know, they're ruining the lives of millions of people with this. Now, the sex tra trade, was that tied back to Russia or was it tied to other countries as well? Well, that's something in, uh, you can look up uh, as many articles as you want about the Tombovskaya Mafia. It was apparently one of their things that they were doing. One thing they were doing was that, another thing was the drug trafficking, and another thing was general corruption. They were killing people to protect their rackets, of course. Um, but it's, it's some kind of like bottomless cynicism with these people that uh, they try to do every evil thing that they can think of. Well, how, how are you, I mean, are they going after you at all? Are you safe? Well, I don't know. I don't go back to Latvia anymore, and I'm for sure not going to go to Russia. So 
I don't uh, advertise where I live or, or okay, that's put good. personal photos uh, on my social networks, but um, uh, yeah, sure, there is danger to me. I mean, I'm angry at certain parties like Ernst & Young and the EBRD for having set me up in this situation because it sort of means I need to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life. Well, and it sounds like Ernst & Young, now why didn't they take it seriously? Were they, are they involved or are they just, they don't want to get killed or what? I mean, what's going on with them? Well, the mentality of it is not what I expected. I expected in the beginning that Ernst & Young would drop this immediately, that they would see huge potential liability from this and they would immediately drop this client. Uh, they're still involved with it now. I mean, what happened is uh, as Parex was getting bailed out, a lot of assets were moving to another bank called ABLV Bank in Latvia. They uh, were auditor for both and kind of oversaw the shifting around of some assets and liabilities between the two banks. That ABLV continued with large-scale money laundering activity for another decade. Uh, Ernst & Young signed off on their reports every year for another decade. Then that bank got sanctioned by the United States Treasury and uh, there was supposed to be an independent liquidator appointed. The independent liquidator, who seemed like he was about to get appointed, got killed, oh, uh, assassinated, with driving to work in Riga, Riga, Latvia, with uh, someone had set up an AK-47 on his route that he took to work and shot him in his car. Uh, then the government announced, <clears throat> this shows the Latvian government being subservient to the mafia, rather than appoint a different independent liquidator, what the government announced is that that bank can liquidate itself. Uh, so people were a little bit shocked that a mafia bank would be allowed to liquidate itself. Uh, but then the government said that Ernst & Young is going to oversee it because since they've been the auditor for that bank for 10 years, that they can uh, oversee it. But then who knows what's really going on there? I guess the Ernst & Young people are all probably shaking in their shoes uh, to go in there and look at anything. So, uh, but they're, they're still involved. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It sounds like everybody's okay, involved. It's a big, it's a big money laundering drug network where all the big players are involved. Now, where does this tie in with the United States and different players in the U.S.? Okay, so one one tie in is the EBRD. Yeah, and and there was a there were two privatizations, actually three of them that were all uh, two of them for sure were fraudulent, and one of them probably was fraudulent, but I can't prove the third one. The first one was this privatization of a stake in Parex Bank to the EBRD was clearly fraud because it was reversed back later. It was revealed that the company was worth zero at the time they made the investment, but they somehow made a huge profit anyway because they had been uh, offered a secret guarantee that nobody knew about. Um, they did the same thing again with uh, the successor called Citadel Bank, and this one is still going today. Uh, where the EBRD claims to be uh, owner of a stake in that. Um, this evidence comes from the official statistics source for the European Union, which is Eurostat, which has mentioned this in a few uh, reports they have published, although the information is secret in Latvia, not only secret, but even designated as a state secret. Uh, the government has said that the details of the deals with the EBRD are state secrets, which means that you can be prosecuted if you talk about them. Jeez. Um, anyway, Eurostat knows about this. 
And then furthermore, Eurostat uh, brought Ernst & Young representatives with them to Latvia when they were discussing this, according to the Eurostat report. So I'm wondering, well, has, Eurostat, has Ernst & Young taken over the whole world that not only they can be involved with this, uh, this fraud activity, but even when the government uh, officials go to uh, see what's going on, that Ernst & Young even goes along with the government. So th this is a whole level of uh, corruption, which was shocking to me. Well, so now uh, it sounds like the... Ernst & Young is covering up for Vladimir Putin's crimes. Or it's you could also say they're covering up for their own failings, that Ernst & Young keeps failing year after year after year to make correct audits. And uh, each year that they uh, fail, they feel that they have to sign off on the one for the next year in order to keep the thing rolling for as long as possible and you know, hope that they retire before everything blows up. Um, that, that could be the attitude. I mean, it could be the attitude within these large institutions, um, Ernst & Young and the EBRD and Eurostat as well to all kind of protect each other because nobody wants anybody else to get in trouble. So they all kind of keep this rolling along. Well, it sounds like, um, um, it, being honest, it sounds like the EBRD is a front. There's a lot of front organizations who are charities and, and things and, and they create them on purpose so that they put the charity in charge. Like they'll have a human trafficking charity and that charity actually monitors the human activity for the mob. So they can get away with more corruption. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, the Russians do a lot of this. And to me, when I, I mean, since I've had firsthand experience with this sort of thing, uh, to me, when I look at the uh, website for the EBRD, which has hundreds of pages of material about, uh, with every beautiful word about equality and sustainability, yeah, yeah. and they're fighting global warming, they're fighting against COVID, they're uh, they're supporting uh, democracy. Uh, it's yeah, every yeah. page is something beautiful, which they're doing. And uh, the reality of what they're actually doing is the exact opposite of what they say that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, if this, what do you think, what do you think the damage is to the average person with this going on? I mean, obviously, they're funding, the, funding human trafficking, they're funding the drug narcotics, they're funding a lot of criminal activity and hiding that from people. But now they also stole, now are they just stealing from the Latvia people or are they stealing funds from everywhere? Well, they're mostly stealing it from themselves in a sense. I mean, it's, I assume that most of the stolen money is coming from Russia. Uh, second after Russia, it's probably coming from Ukraine. And then uh, they looted out Latvia as well, but Latvia is a smaller country. Um, so is this the, where the Ukraine, uh, hold on, is this where all the Ukraine uh, money laundering is probably funneling through? Or do you think there's other big well, players the, as well? I'm sure there's other big players, but the, the main thing with Ukraine, which connected to this banking system, is that when Yanukovych was the president, um, he worked with a bagman, you could call him, named uh, Sergei Kurchenko. And that guy, Sir Kurchenko, was basically helped uh, Yanukovych remove billions of dollars from Ukraine. Yeah, because when they um, left, when they left, they had like thirty-seven dollars or some tiny amount in their bank account for the Ukraine, right? I mean, they looted the entire government um, funds to, to to almost zero. Yeah, just like transferred the whole national treasury to themselves, essentially. And they did it so, through they um, did it through this bank that you are talking about. 
I understand that the main bank for Kurchenko was ABLB, which was the successor, one of the successors to my bank. Okay, okay. And this bank should not have existed in the first place because if that EBRD cover-up had never happened, uh, then these people would have been prosecuted already and they wouldn't have been able to just loot out one bank and move their activity to a different bank.